Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 7. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And so twice in this verse we have reference to the loving kindnesses of the Lord. And note that that word is in the plural, indicating the great loving kindness of the Lord to his people. And in an Old Testament context, the people of God are the nation of Israel. And Isaiah here is pleading to God for his nation. He speaks of all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, the great goodness toward the house of Israel. What enormous blessings God has bestowed upon Israel in the past. How merciful he had been in rescuing the people from slavery in Egypt. He had led them through the wilderness. He had brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel did not merit such exaltation. It was merely through the abundance of God's loving kindness. And this is a picture of the great salvation which we have in Christ. We are brought out of slavery to sin, corresponding to the Israelite slavery in Egypt. And we are brought into the kingdom of God, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. We read in verse 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their saviour. When Israel first entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai, the Lord gave them the grace to stay in the covenant. As their saviour from Egyptian slavery, he would not after that leave them without his constant help. They therefore possessed all the necessary potential to be a faithful, obedient people. Children that will not lie. How God then desired to bless and exalt 
this nation. And for a while he did. Uh, After the period of the judges and of King Saul, uh, God raised up the royal house of David. And Israel truly prospered during the reigns of David and Solomon. The promise of future blessedness which the Lord had made to Israel in the wilderness uh, were indeed fulfilled in that period. And we read of God's promise to the nation in Leviticus 26 and verse 3. In the following verses, God said, If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. Ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. That was God's promise. That if they were a faithful people, they would not have an enemy invading them. Leviticus 26 verse 9. For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. So we see that abundant harvests, safety from enemies, economic prosperity and even the absence of wild beasts are privileges which God will bestow upon a nation which is faithful to him. During this election campaign, all our politicians are mainly focusing uh, upon economic issues and suggesting how they, through their policies, can make the country more prosperous. But no country can ultimately be economically prosperous if it ignores Almighty God. And it is tragic that we never hear the name of God in all the political debates. Because only righteousness before God can exalt a nation. We read in verse 9 here, Concerning Israel and God's care for Israel, in all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. Our Lord so identified with his people's affliction in Egypt that he himself is said to be afflicted in their affliction. Thus in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is said to be 
touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Hebrews 4.15 And in fact, here in verse 9, it is the second person of the Trinity who is being referred to and his great compassion. The angel of God's presence is none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one with the Father and always in perfect communion with him. And so it was Christ who in former times had brought Israel out of slavery, had overwhelmed the Egyptian armies and had protected the people as they journeyed through the wilderness. And this is confirmed for us by the Apostle Paul. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14, Paul writes, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and they did all eat the same spiritual meat, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so there, uh, Paul is plainly stating that it was Christ who was guiding the people through the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And so it was the Lord Jesus Christ in the pillar of cloud and of fire leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Uh, and here we see then that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, watches over the nation that honours him. Now in New Testament times, this of course applies supremely to the church. The church is God's true Israel. But nations have not ceased to exist in New Testament times. God has not stopped judging nations in New Testament times. And so there are important principles here for nations as well as for the church. We read in verse 9, in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. This was the great love of God for his people Israel. He carried them as a father carries a child. Now as we read these words, 
we must remember that God's true Israel today is made up of those who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ. Such have been carried into the the presence of God by Christ. Because Christ is the angel of God's presence. And so again we focus upon that term in verse 9, the angel of his presence. In the Hebrew it is literally the angel of God's face. Meaning the angel in whom God's face is manifested. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God makes known his glory to man. You see, God never speaks to man directly, as it were. It's always through Christ. God did not speak through Christ, men would just be destroyed. Because men are too sinful to come directly into God's presence or have dealings with him. But it is through his angel, the angel of his presence, that God administers his purposes of salvation to the world. God is also dealing with nations. The Lord Jesus Christ right now is sitting on his throne in heaven and he's not only judging individuals, he is judging nations. We read in Psalm 33 and verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. Then we are told concerning nations and their power, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. One of the debates in the current election campaign is about whether or not our nation should spend so many millions of pounds upon the trident nuclear deterrent. Now, without entering into that debate, the Bible teaches that no nation is saved by its military strength. It is saved only by its trust in God. That's not saying that a nation should not have proper defences, it should. That that is also a biblical principle. Uh, We find Solomon, for example, when he came to the throne, building up the defences of the nation. But unless there is trust in God, 
a nation can never be saved. And this is a principle which our own nation has completely forgotten. It has completely forgotten that we were not overrun by the enemy in the Second World War because God rescued us. Because the nation turned to God in prayer. We have forgotten that. And we think that our alliances make us safe. And that is the great idolatry of the post-war period in Britain. NATO has given us peace. The European Union has given us peace. God is completely removed from the picture. But it is God who determines whether or not there is war. It is God who brings peace to a nation and security to a nation. Now we read of Israel here in verse 10. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy. And he fought against them. Israel rebelled against God's commandments in the wilderness. They rebelled during the conquest of Canaan. They rebelled during the period of the judges. They even began to rebel during Solomon's reign, turning to idols and false gods. And thereafter, the history of Israel, although it had some high points, it was generally downward and turning against God. Prophets were sent to them, but they were usually ignored. And so we are told here in verse 10 that the people vexed his Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity strives on the hearts of men, convincing them of sin, drawing them to repentance and faith. But the Holy Spirit is vexed and grieved when men resist his gracious promptings. So let us note here in verses 9 and 10 that we have reference to all three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the angel of the Father's presence, namely the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let us note that as Israel became disobedient to God, God became Israel's enemy. Verse 10. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Imagine that. God fighting against a nation. Now if we look at modern Britain... We need to think about this seriously because we have turned away from God and that therefore must mean that God is now the enemy of this nation. 
And God is fighting against this nation. That is a terrifying prospect. And if we have a politician knocking on our door, seeking our vote, let us speak of the Christian faith. And where does this nation stand in relation to biblical truth? So we are learning here that a whole nation can actually become the object of the enmity of Almighty God. God declares that nation is my enemy. Now 70 years ago, God delivered us from an enemy. But would he do that today? given what has happened to this nation in the last 70 years, considering the emptying of the churches, considering how many churches have been closed down in that period, how many churches uh, are now shops or devoted to another religion. Always remember seeing a photograph the lovely non-conformist chapel in Bedford where God's word used to be preached is now a nightclub. In High Wycombe there's a ch chapel converted to a bed shop. Uh, that is a, a very apt metaphor, isn't it? Man has turned from God seeking his ease. And so the Lord in his sovereign power, becomes angry with nations. And he can actually fight against a people who defy him. And our land today is putting itself at enmity with the God who controls all things, who controls the natural world. Tell people in modern Britain that God controls the elements and that he can use the elements as a means of judgment and they will dismiss you as a dangerous fanatic. The Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If governments today do not encourage true worship and holiness, then a nation will have the hand of the Lord working against it. And of course, um, political wisdom in modern Britain means that you cannot identify any longer specifically with Christianity. Everything has to be multi-faith. But if we deny that Jesus Christ is the only way, then we are making ourselves the enemy of God. It was not the gods of all the world's religions which saved this nation in 1940. It was the one true Trinitarian God who saved us. And we need to remind our politicians that they are answerable to God, not to those who elect them, but to God. Yes, of course, they should keep their promises to those who elect them, but ultimately, 
they are answerable to God. And in this last five years, we have seen our government overturning the law of God in Parliament. And if a nation keeps on defying God, he may raise up an even worse government as a judgment upon that nation. Verse 11, we read, Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people said, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Throughout Israel's history, the people had rebelled against the Lord. But then when disaster came upon them, they remembered the days of old, the days of Moses, when God had done so many mighty works in bringing the nation out of slavery. Now, Isaiah was ministering uh, during the years 739 to 686 BC. And during that period, there was again much turning to false gods and a general departure from God's laws, just as there had been during the time of Moses and the following centuries. Therefore, in Isaiah's day, the people once more remembered the mighty things that God had done. Therefore, uh, he remembered the days of old. And God, of course, remembered those days. And he wanted to remind the people of those days so that they would remember too. The people needed to remember how God had rescued them in the past. They needed to remember how they were miraculously led through the Red Sea. They needed to remember how Moses, through his anointed leadership, rescued them. And they needed to remember why in Isaiah's day such great things were no longer happening. It was all because of the nation's rebellion against him. When Joshua took over the reins of government from Moses, the Lord, as we have said, told him that he must govern only in accordance with the word, God's revealed truth in Scripture. Joshua 1 and verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. And that is what we must say to each of our political leaders, whatever party it might be, the book of the law, God's law, shall not depart out of thy mouth, or else we're not going to vote for you. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And so all leaders and politicians have a responsibility to rule 
according to the word of God. And many will say today, oh no, in a, a multicultural society you, you can't organise your laws upon the Christian faith. You can't have that narrow focus. Well, if we do not have that narrow focus, we shall never prosper, but shall come under God's judgment. And it is now the calling of Christians to take on the establishment and to reject this whole multi-faith scenario. And it will be costly doing so, because people will call us bigoted, prejudiced, stirring up trouble. But we must assert that Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other path to God but through him. Now we read here in verse 12. God helping Israel in the time of Moses. That led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm. Dividing the water before them. To make himself an everlasting name. In the parting of the Red Sea and in the escape from the pursuing Egyptians the name of God was glorified both in Israel and amongst the Gentiles to make himself an everlasting name. Other nations heard about how the Israelites had been brought through the Red Sea. What a wonderful deed that Israel's God had performed. Once upon a time, other nations could look at Britain and they could say, look at the wonderful things that their God has done for them. Can any nation look at Britain today and say that? In the time of Isaiah, the nation of Israel was once more turning back, turning away from the Lord. And so they were now being threatened by various enemies. The Lord was no longer keeping them secure. Now God remembered how he had greatly blessed them in the time of Moses. and The people needed to remember that as well. Verse 13. They need to remember the God that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. The word wilderness here means a vast plain, a, a great tract of flat open country, which a horse can freely cross with no impediment whatsoever. Against the mighty Egyptian army, the situation looked helpless for Israel. But God is greater than men. And the Israelites were able to escape from the Egyptians as those who were galloping on a horse across flat, open country. The people were able to escape without stumbling. That is the point that is being enforced in verse 13, that God rescued the people and kept them safe. 
Verse 14, as a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Now the metaphor in verse 14 is that of sheep coming down from a barren mountainside into the lush green pastures of a valley. Thus did the Lord lead the people from the wilderness to the promised land with all its pleasantness and all its fertility. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. As the Israelites advanced into the promised land, the Canaanites were defeated and fled. It was not military might giving Israel victory. Take the conquest of Jericho, for example. That was the hand of God working for the people, causing them to capture that city and bring the walls crashing down. It was not military might that did it. And so the Canaanites and the surrounding nations were made to tremble at Israel's advance. And so as Israel occupied the promised land, other nations looked and trembled at the power of Israel's God. What a contrast to today. Sophisticated 21st century liberal secularists cannot see the hand of God at work in history. They cannot understand how God once did rescue our nation. Israel in Isaiah's day had descended into a defiance of the Lord. What was the result? They were ravaged by enemies. And so they needed to humble themselves. And this is why Isaiah cries out to the Lord uh, for mercy upon this nation. Verse 15. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? In Hebrew culture, the bowels were the seat of the emotions. So Isaiah prays that the Lord might manifest his former compassions towards Israel. God reigns over the earth from his heavenly throne. He does with the nations whatever he wishes. Isaiah then prays to the Lord that there might be the sounding of his bowels. That means the stirring of his heart in moving in mercy towards the nation. And so Isaiah here is praying to the Lord on behalf of the nation. And that, and that is what we have to do for our nation today. The church, the small remnant of God's true people, 
we have to plead to God for the nation because the rest of the nation is not considering God at all. And it is only us, God's true people, a tiny remnant who can hold back the judgment of God. Just as ten people would have held back the judgment of God upon the city of Sodom. And so what Isaiah prays here for Israel, in verse 15, we should be praying for this nation today. Verse 16, doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. O Lord, thou art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Abraham and Jacob have long since died. They cannot help the nation. They will be shocked at Israel's current rebellion. From the earliest times of history for Israel, the Lord had been to them their Father and their Redeemer. Oh, that he might be pleased to carry out those tasks once more and to bring those blessings to the nation once more which he formerly granted. The Lord has worked mightily in the past. Might he do so once more? That is the prayer here of Isaiah. And that is what we must be praying for our nation today. As we read in verse 15, Dear Lord, show us thy power in coming to our nation's aid. Defeat the powers of darkness all around us. Bring glory to thine own holy name. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon our land and bring us back to the fear of thee through Jesus Christ our Lord that is what we must be praying for our nation today Amen